0: Really have enjoyed walking through John. I have, I have strived to um, go to the Word of God each week as a student. And, and I want the Lord to, to teach me. And so I come every week with something that's fresh to me. And so I'm enthusiastic about it because I'm excited about what I'm learning in the Word. And so I want to encourage you in the Word of God. Last week, we started off with John chapter 5. I didn't preach here, but I preached the same passage in Ashland, and, uh, and Mackie preached last week here, John chapter five. There's this unknown healer that to this point, Jesus had been doing miracle after miracle, but all of the miracles had been more private, that it was a specific group of people that saw Jesus in his deity, saw Jesus in his authority and his power it's God in the, in the form of man. And so this, this circumstance here, this is the first time that Jesus, in the Gospel of John, that Jesus is showing his deity in a more public way, that people saw his deity, and so Christ. Was displayed. That's just how I label it. How I process through um, seeing John chapter five. Christ was displayed. Uh, you remember the story last week um, that there was a man. It was a certain specific man. You have to imagine a a, a pool, a, a place where there's maybe a hundred people, maybe more than that, that are suffering and in pain. But there was a specific person that had been an invalid for. 38 years, and to put in context, this old guy standing before you is 38 years old, and could I, I couldn't imagine suffering for 38 years on this earth, and so when this man that's unknown to, to this, I mean, Jesus comes to this man, and this man has no clue who Jesus is, and Jesus comes and says, do you want to be healed? Well, what's the response? Absolutely. 38 years of suffering? You kidding me? So what was the response? Verse 7? He said, but nobody's been able to put me in the waters. When the when the waters were stirred, nobody has taken me to the water. And Jesus said, He said, Get up, take up your bed and walk. Jesus didn't help him get into the water so that he could be healed. Jesus healed him. And immediately, at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. And there's this key thing. Look at it. It says, now, that day was the Sabbath. That is significant. To so Now, we're going to look from verse 19 to the end. But before, the critics dismayed. When Jesus performed this miracle on the Sabbath, the critics showed up. And they were extremely critical of Jesus. Specifically, Moses said that you shall rest from your work on the Sabbath. And so the Jews, the Jewish leadership, the oral tradition, they they developed this way more in-depth philosophy that work means more than your job. It means that even if you walk through a field and pick a grain of, of wheat, then you're violating the Sabbath. And so they grilled Jesus about the fact that he's ignoring the teaching of their tradition and says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. My goodness, that is absolute blasphemy unless you are God. God. Jesus was saying, I am God. And so verse 19 to the end of that chapter, we're gonna look at the ultimate authority. How did Jesus, wh- where was his authority defined? How do you perform these things? How do you speak of yourself this way? Now Jesus has this ultimate authority, and I want to put it in context. I challenge you about this. Just I dare somebody in the room to do this, but not really. Don't say. Don't say John told me to do this, all right? All right. Next time Marshall has a home game, I want you to, you're in the stands and you go down to the sideline and you say, Look, Doc, I need, I'm gonna need you to run a different play. All right. That run up the middle is not getting anywhere. I need you to like open it up. All right? This during the game, just go down and say, All right, Doc Holiday, this is what I want you to do. All right? And then when you're done with that game, I want you to drive down to the state capitol and knock on Jim Justice's door, the governor's office. And I want you to go in there and I want you to say, look, I don't agree with what you're doing with the school education system during this COVID. I'm dropping that bomb because some of you guys are, we shouldn't meet. Some of you guys are, we should meet and everybody has an opinion. So what I want you to do is take your opinion, knock on Jim Justice's door and say, look, This is what you need to do, all right? When you're done with that, I need you to go to Cavill Huntington, all right? And you're at Cabell Huntington. I want you to go into the doctor and say, look, I don't agree with the way that you're practicing your medicine here. I have my degree from WebMD, and I'm gonna come and tell you how you have to practice medicine, right? In the words of Michael Scott, they would all say this. Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? You have no authority to go in there. You have to earn the authority. You have to earn the ability to go and speak into Doc Holliday's ear because you have no authority who you are right now. You have to have authority. You have to earn authority. You have to have authority to speak in Jim Justice's ear. And the same with a doctor. Like, not just anybody off the street can go into the ear of a doctor and tell him what he should do. And so Jesus makes this audacious claim that I'm God. And they're thinking, what gives you the authority to call yourself equal with God? And so their confrontation merits this response of Jesus. And as we walk through this, I encourage you. I encourage you to engage your mind, engage your heart on the truth of God's word. Don't just, don't just kind of wait it out the service, you made it to church, that's good enough, and don't, don't sit like that, but engage your mind in the truth. And as we're walking through this, let the word of God speak to you. This is going to be so significant if that is happening. And so John chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 19, if you're following along, Jesus said to them, he said, truly, truly, it's an emphatic statement, he's saying something bold and he wants them to listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Jesus, God in the flesh, can do nothing of his own accord says, but only what he, has sees, what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And Jesus is talking specifically about the fact that he's calling himself God, and he's also talking about the idea that he's not breaking the Sabbath. He's addressing this. Jesus is not being disobedient to God's will. Jesus was not being, like, independent of god's will jesus was actually fulfilling god's will and he's trying to help them understand so he keeps going verse 20 for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing we're going to retrace this verse and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel do you hear what that's saying God the Father loves the Son and shows who? God the Father is showing the Son that he himself is doing, all that he's doing. Greater works than these will he, God the Father, show him the Son so that we may marvel. God is doing something in and through his Son. In verse 21, and speaking of the resurrection from the dead, says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one. Listen to how offensive that statement is to a group of Jewish leaders to stand up and say, the father judges no one, but he's given all the judgment to who? Jesus is saying this of himself, that God has turned over the right to judge to Jesus. To a Jewish audience, they know that there's only one judge, that, that, that one judge judges all of creation, that that one judge is over all, and this man Jesus shows up and says, look, God has turned over the authority to me to judge. That's a crazy, audacious statement. Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He's turning them to honor him. verse, or that's the second part, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. <laughs> the Jews are blaspheming. or saying, you are speaking blasphemy, Jesus. The Jews are saying, you are blasphemous for saying that you are equal with God. And Jesus is saying, you are blasphemous for rejecting me. That that the Father is honoring me. He's specifically saying, you're rejecting the Father because you're rejecting me. He goes to another truly, truly statement. I say to you, whoever hears my words... And believes him who sent me has, currently possesses, he has eternal life. Eternal life does not start when you die. Eternal life starts when you're born again that you are set free from the power of darkness, that you're raised to walk in newness of life. He does not come into judgment. That person that believes in him, where where Jesus at one point says, the wrath of God abides on that person. I believe it might've been in 1 John. Um, The wrath of God, it doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming down the road and is now here the the hour is coming but it's here too so you will be resurrected but you are resurrected you are raised to walk a new life when the dead will hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. God has given the authority to exercise judgment to Jesus. All right. I want you to meet this lady. I don't know if you know her, I don't I don't know her. But it's a cool picture. So many times in our churches, um, and I'm not saying this church, I'm saying across America, so many times people look down a long nose and, and feeling motivated by their own righteousness. They feel like I'm doing good in life, and then they look at somebody that's struggling, and they look down their nose and say, um, man, that, you see that that person is struggling with? My goodness, A lot of times it involves getting on a phone and telling other people what that person is struggling with. And so what happens is we begin to judge mankind based on their sin. And the reality is Jesus is the only one that can judge Now, I don't negate what he said in Matthew, believe seven, where he said, um, Remove the spot out of your eye, remove the splinter out of your eye, the log out of your eye, so that you might be able to remove the splinter out of your brothers, that we're called to judge one another in certain circumstances. But here, Jesus is saying himself, He is the judge. The reason why He's the Son of Man, He, He is the one that came in the form of man. God the Father sent his only begotten Son, and God came in flesh, and he lived a perfect life. And so, in his righteousness, he judges us. He has the authority, he's the only one that has the authority to judge. He is also the only one that has the authority to forgive based on what he did on his cross. And so you see a person that feels justified by their righteousness to look down their nose at people for their unrighteousness, miss the idea that the only hope that I have is Jesus' righteousness. So on the other side, by the way, I I want to mention this. On the other side of this spectrum... You think about a Jesus or people that say, Man, you can't judge me. Jesus is my only judge. Well, you say that flippantly, man, that should terrify you. If Jesus is your judge, that should terrify you, that we will all stand before Jesus one day. And he's gonna go on and talk about that. Verse 28: Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Speaking of Daniel 12, where the where the tombs are opened up, and and people will go before him, every person come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What's that saying? Every person will stand before God, will stand before Jesus, face to face. And to some, they'll stand before him as the savior. And that, that day you stand there, your only hope is his righteousness, not your own. There's others that will stand there before him and he will be their judge. A lot of times those people look at their life and say, well, I've done this and done this and I was a good person here. I was, reality is you're being judged based on perfection. And if you are not perfect, you're judged. We as believers stand there. The reason we look forward to the day that we see Jesus face to face is because we know that it's not based on my righteousness. It's based on Christ alone. It's our only hope before him. And Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. Jesus, the son of God, saying that he can do nothing on his own. We're going to come back and visit that at the very end. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. It's right. It's unbiased. It says, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Is that saying that Jesus is not telling the truth? Read that verse again. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Well, if I ask that question, is this saying that Jesus is a liar? You should emphatically say no. That's not what it's saying. Jesus cannot lie. He can do no wrong. Listen what it says, Deuteronomy 17, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. What Jesus is saying, that for me to speak about myself doesn't hold up in the court of law. Say you're being put on trial, you're not the only one that can witness of yourself. You need witnesses Two or three witnesses to point to the fact of something, and Jesus is on trial about his deity. So he needs witnesses. And so you look at verse 33, he points out the witness of John the Baptist. It is so significant that John the Baptist came. He's not just a guy in the line, he is somebody that is preparing the way, and he is the witness that comes before Jesus to testify of his deity. You sent to John, speaking to the Jewish leaders, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. You sought him out. What's going on with that man? Who, Who is he preaching about? Who is this one that he's preparing the way of? John told him the truth. He says, not that the testimony that I received is from man. He didn't need validated by man. Jesus didn't. But he's saying these things, John is even saying these things, that we might be believing, that we might be saved, that we might see Jesus as life. He has a burn, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. This lamp that was casting light for them to see the way pointed to a greater light, who is the light of the world. And that picture is this whole thing. So by the the witness of John the Baptist, by the working, it's another thing that testified of Jesus' uh, deity, by the working of Jesus' miracles. It says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. The things that God is doing in Jesus That this demonstration of power in Jesus is greater than John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, these very miracles, these signs, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. These are all evidences that the Father has sent the Son, and it testifies of his deity. So, by the witness of John the Baptist, by the working of Jesus' miracles, and by the word of the God the Father. This is powerful. It's going to roll to the end, 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Do you remember what happens when he was being baptized? He came out of the water, and what a voice came from heaven. This is my son. God the Father validated Jesus as God. What happened at Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus being shown in all his glory and Peter's doing his talking, open mouth, insert foot. God the Father says, this is my son. Listen to him. In other words, be quiet, Peter, listen to him. God the Father pointing to Jesus' deity. He says, His voice, second part of that verse, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, in your heart, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. Believing in Jesus helps them to see who God is, they don't get it, they're missing the picture. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is in them that it is they that bear witness about me. As you read through the scriptures, he's confronting the Jews that know the Torah from cover to cover. They have it memorized. They could teach classes on it, but yet they miss the point of it. Everything that was taught throughout the whole word of God points to Jesus, and so you could be the smartest person in a room, know more theology than everybody in the room, but the confrontation is, what do you do with Jesus? Do you trust him and believe him as Lord and Savior, or is he just a topic that we're reading about in a book? So that confrontation goes to even us today. We're not just trying to search scriptures hoping that we find some salvation. Jesus is the answer. He's confronting the Hebrew people, the Jewish leaders that are looking into the word of God and they miss the topic. They miss the point of it is Jesus. In verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do not think... Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. In other words, Jesus isn't there to accuse you. He's not on earth at that point to condemn the world, is what he said in chapter 3, but that through him the world might be saved. He said, don't think that I'm here to accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you. You're already accused You're accused by what Moses, the person you're chasing after, the things that he's written that you cling so hard to, you're accused, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. You know, they stake their whole life and livelihood on earning salvation through the law and they don't understand the laws there to show us that we need a savior and Jesus has come but they reject the solution they reject life by turning from Christ and so as you look it's saying that Moses wrote of me says Deuteronomy Moses specifically says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is him you shall listen. Moses, thousands of years earlier, was saying, When Jesus comes, listen to him. And they missed it. Jesus, when he rose again and he, before he ascended, he was walking on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that? And they're trying to figure out what this whole Jesus situation is. And Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Jesus is seen cover to cover from Genesis to Revelation. This entire thing, the pictures that happen in the Old Testament aren't just cool stories of things that happened thousands of years ago. Everything points to Jesus. You think about Moses. Moses, Jesus is the better Moses is what Hebrews said, that he's the intercessor, he's the go-between between God and man. You see, the rock of Horeb, you remember the story. How many times was he supposed to strike the rock? One time, because when you strike the rock, it feeds everybody, it quenches the thirst of everybody. The picture that Paul said in Corinthians, it said that the rock is Jesus. So that picture of an Old Testament story points to a New Testament that that's Jesus, that you strike Jesus on the cross once and he quenches the thirst of all. You see, story after story, Jesus called himself the bread of life. He's connecting himself to the manna that came from heaven that nourished everybody, every day. Jesus was the sacrifice, the picture of the sacrifice that clothed Adam and Eve in the garden. Jesus was representative as Isaac The only begotten son, the one of a kind, son of promise, that was gonna be offered to, to on the altar to God. And yet he walked off that mountain alive. This is all pointing to Jesus from cover to cover. And so why, if this entire human history points to Jesus, why do we see verses like verse chapter five, verse 19 and chapter five, verse 30? When Jesus himself said, the son can do nothing of his own accord, says that I can do nothing on my own. This is the son of God. This is Jesus, God in flesh among us. And if God is not limited, how is it that Jesus Is not power. Is this saying that Jesus isn't powerful enough? What does that say? That should trouble us when we sit and think about it. Jesus is saying, I can't do, I can do nothing of my own accord. I can't do, I can do nothing on my own. My mind immediately goes to Philippians chapter 2. This is, a lot of people call this the kenosis passage that um, Jesus, through Jesus, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I love the King James. King James says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It wasn't a stretch. It wasn't robbing God of glory to be equal with God. He's calling himself God. This passage is calling Jesus God. It says, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is more drastic than if a man came in the form of an ant and died for the sin of all the ants across the world. Far more drastic. This is God who spoke creations. God who was in the creative work of each one of us, the heart, the lungs. He created us, but then he inserted himself into human history and came in the form and the limitations of man that he hungered. Jesus thirsted. Jesus got tired. This is God in flesh, tired, I wrestle with it. I, I was really wrestling with the best way to say it and uh, just to try to help understand it and, uh, and make more to communicate it so it's understandable. Um, I love playing basketball with my boys. Uh, I have a, this picture is about a year or two ago. Uh, I've got a 10, an 8, and a 7 year old. I love playing basketball with them. Uh, the thing about playing basketball with the boys, um, A lot of times it'll be me and Jeremiah versus Jaden and Josiah. And me and Jeremiah whoop up on Jaden and Josiah. I mean, whoop up on them, right? The thing about basketball, when I play with young kids, I don't give up my right to compete, right? If we're playing two on two, I have the right to swat their shot to the road, right? I have the right to compete. I can take the ball, whether it's open or not, and dunk it on them right on a short hoop you have to grant i can't do a big but you i'm not i have the right to compete it's not wrong for me to compete but i also have the ability to compete i can do that i can dunk it on a short hoop i can swat it but when i play basketball with my boys I choose to submit myself to their limitations. I I drop down to their limitations so that I can play with them. I don't sacrifice my right to do it. I don't sacrifice my ability to do it. But what I do is I submit myself to their limitations. You see, Jesus Jesus in the garden said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass. Father, if if it be your will, let this cup pass. But not my will, but yours, O Lord. The Father had an agenda for Jesus, and Jesus submitted himself, came in our limitations. And the way I would say it, Jesus had the right to act as God. Jesus had the ability to act as God. He is God. When he was in human form, he is God. He is the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. He wasn't just part God and part man. Jesus had the right to act as God. Jesus had the ability to act as God. But Jesus chose to submit himself to our limitations. He came under our law to demonstrate complete dependence on the Father. Jesus came in our limitations to demonstrate complete dependence on the Father. My mind immediately goes, to John 15 5 what's Jesus himself say I look forward to hitting this passage in a couple months I am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me apart from Jesus you can do nothing It's the same thing that Jesus was saying about God the Father. He said, apart from God the Father, I can do nothing. He's saying to us, apart from Jesus himself, you can do nothing. Well, listen, you're not laying aside your right to do whatever you want, right? If you want to go to Taco Bell for lunch, you can go to Taco Bell for lunch. If you want to go shoot hoops this afternoon, you have the right to do whatever you want. Right now, for this season, you have the ability to do what you want. So it's saying, apart from me, you can do nothing while I'm doing things. What he's saying is, he's calling us to dependence on Christ for life. Not just coming to church and hanging out with church people. He's talking about the living Jesus alive in me and that Jesus wants to live his life, his agenda, his will through me. As a takeaway, just as Jesus depended upon the Father, so we are called to depend on the Son. That apart from Him we can do nothing. I, I wrestled through um, how to speak to believers in this room I, for years. When I look back at John fifteen five, um, for years. I I did a lot of things for God. My mindset as a believer is now that I'm saved, now I'm going to roll my sleeves up and do something for God. I'm going to put my work boots on, my Jesus work boots, and go out and accomplish something for God. And for years I was striving to do things, and I felt empty and, and I felt like I was ineffective. And around my college years, I began to learn this idea that Jesus isn't calling me to do something for him. He desires to take this vessel, this vessel, and do something through you. And when Jesus produces fruit, it's the kind of fruit that remains. When God is doing things through you, you see these things happen, and you got no credit for yourself because you know that it was him. But what happens is sometimes we get in a rut where we put on our work boots and try to do things for God and we're celebrating what we do. We celebrate our accomplishments and say, God, I hope that brings you glory. What Jesus wants of us is complete dependence on the Son. The Son has an agenda for you as a branch. To produce fruit. And his desire is to have complete access for you to abide in him and to, for him to abide in you. That his life flows through you. I challenge you this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, tired and weary of trying to do things for God and finding yourself very inadequate and ineffective, I man. God is calling you, He just wants a vessel to demonstrate His glory. Today's a good day to come. And just say, I'm done. I'm done with the rat race. I want to be a part of life. I want to see a living God demonstrate his glory through weakness. If you're a lost person this morning, man, it's a terrifying thought to stand before Jesus as the judge. And he'll judge you based on perfection. And if you're not perfect, you're condemned. That sounds depressing, But Jesus is perfect, and the call is for you to believe and trust in him. So whatever the Spirit is doing this morning in you, uh, respond to him. Don't be inhibited to respond to him.